welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching uh, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also find us on, uh, you can email us rather at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And uh, hey, wherever you're listening to this, please follow, subscribe, whatever you have to do. It really helps us out. Um, leave a review, leave a rating, whatever you feel like you're willing to do. Uh, you know, this last weekend was WrestleMania weekend. So for the other podcast I do last week in wrestling, I watched 16 and a half hours of wrestling. That's a lot of fucking wrestling. So, uh, yeah, we just record, we just did our live stream, uh, cause I'm actually recording this intro on Monday. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, I'm beat. Now, we talked for like three and a half hours about like six different wrestling shows, four of which were long pay-per-views. It was freaking awesome. If you want to check that out, go to lastweekinwrestling.com. I'm going to take you to our our YouTube, but we have a link tree, all the things. Just find us. You can find me, Austin Glidden, on Instagram, and I have my link tree, and it has all of our stuff, both for Medium Cool and for Last Week in Wrestling. So if you're interested in that, that'd be pretty cool uh today's episode though is really fun because you know we're not here to talk about wrestling we're here to talk about movies and uh the person i'm talking about movies with today is uh my you know uh i knew her in undergrad i knew her in grad school Uh, i went to ball state university she was one of the professors she was a younger professor she had recently had children i was a uh, non-traditional student and I was about to have my first child. We were kind of in a similar place, even though she was far more advanced in terms of her career uh, and her academia. Um, but we just like kind of uh, hit it off. I was friends with her, and you know, uh, I became friends with several of the faculty. But Ashley was always one of my close friends. This is Ashley Donnelly. Uh, she is uh, the she's a full professor at Ball State University. And uh, I'm going to let her in inter- I'm going to introduce her uh, whenever I'm talking to her. But I just want to say, you know, we go way back. We have talked so much about movies. And I have to say it was such a pleasant experience to talk with her on the phone or on over Zoom or whatever. And uh, just have a great time talking about movies again. Because we don't get to talk that much anymore. We're both super busy. And we just don't have a reason to prioritize that. But it's always an absolute pleasure talking with Ashley. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into it because we talked for about an hour and a half, and uh, we have a really great time. I basically asked Ashley, make a short list of movies that kind of changed the way you see movies, good or bad, you know, but just movies that you want to talk about as movies that kind of inform the lens in which you watch all movies. And we have a great conversation, and some of her picks are really fun. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. And uh, hey, uh, next week, we're actually going to have a guy named Rick Jimenez on. He is uh, in a band called Extinction AD. He's also in one of my old, uh, an old favorite hardcore band called This, uh, um, yeah, This Hell. And uh, dude, this dude's going to be super fun. Not only is he in super, super into wrestling and music, but he's also into movies. So uh, we're going to talk. He's had his own podcast. Quite frankly, I don't even know if they're still going. We're going to have to ask him. Uh, that'd be a whole lot of fun. And that'd be next week. But for this week, let's go see what Ashley Donnelly's up to. All right, everybody. Uh, I am here with Ashley Donnelly. She is the professor of media or one of the professors of media uh, at Ball State University, my alma mater. 
She has uh, written a couple of books. In 2014, she had a book called Renegade Hero and Faux Rogue, The Secret Traditionalism of Television Bad Boys, which I remember you writing. That was uh, a fun time. And then uh, 2018, you actually had a book called Subverting Mainstream Narratives in the Reagan Era, Giving Power to the People. Can't wait to talk about that one because we haven't talked about that, I don't think. Um but Ashley and I have been friends for many years. Uh, I was a non-traditional student about to have a daughter, so I really related to the professors more than the students. But that's, you know, we became friends really quickly uh, around that point. And uh, especially when it often felt like you and I were battling the classes that I took with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ashley, go ahead and say hello. And uh, then I have a couple questions for you. Hello. There you go. Boom. Um, you know, I remember being in, I think it was, uh, at the time, TCOM 204. Is that a thing? 206? 204? 204? I don't know yeah. which one. 204. And Analysis I remember. And yep. And w we watched Beyond Beats and Rhymes. I believe this is the one. Yes. And at the end, there, uh, toward the end, there's, there's a point where the, uh, gentleman running the entire documentary, uh, shows up at this, like, uh, I don't, it's not a conference, but like this, uh, this big event. And and correct me if this isn't the right one, but there was one where there are these women walking around in like Daisy Dukes and like um, shirts that are revealing about as much as wearing a swimsuit on top. Yeah. And guys are like harassing them. MTV Spring Break uh, ah. event in Florida. Yeah. And I just remember in class afterwards, you were talking about that and someone brought it like we started talking about that specific moment and there was a point where uh, one of the guys in the class was like, well, if they didn't want those guys to harass them, they shouldn't address that way. And I'll never forget how red your face got. <laughs> <laughs> you were trying so hard to be cool. Like, all right, we got to keep this, but you and I were the only people on the same page. And that's when I knew we were akin. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's called uh, don't hit the students. Um, but <laughs> I, that's, you know, that's one of those times when I learned, like, if I stay quiet enough, eventually the class will turn on the student. And that's what they did. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it can be tough as a teacher <laughs> myself now and everything. It's uh, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so um, but we also uh, taught a couple of classes together. I helped you co-teach. A controversy in American cinema class. Yes. And also we did a gender and sexuality class, which friend of the show, Sam Watermeyer, took the controversy class. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but I, I just uh, I want people to kind of get a little bit familiar with what you do here. Um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about your academic endeavors, maybe about like what is subverting mainstream narratives in the Reagan era? You know, I mean, that's a big question. I understand that's a can of worms, but can you kind of just tell us a little bit about what you're interested in, what you're studying, so on? Yeah. Okay. So I I kind of got here in a very roundabout way. Um, I was an English major in college, um, literature and writing. And then I went to, uh, uh, I got my master's degree in cultural and critical theory um and then when i started my phd i was working with um uh fiction and film and so um when i moved i was doing that in the uk and then when i moved back to america and finished my phd 
I met some people who were interested in film and I started, I was adjuncting quite a bit um, to help pay for, you know, my life. And um, I ended up teaching quite a few classes in cinema. And so that actually led me to the job at Ball State. Um, so anyway, that's how I got here. Yeah. But my dissertation a billion years ago was um, on something called blank fiction, um, which is 80s fiction, uh, Brett Easton Ellis and um, some other writers that are similar to that. And um, I was comparing some films that um, I thought were uh, very similar in style to the writing um, of those novels. And um, basically that um, spun completely out of control and became the book um, subverting mainstream narratives. And um, some of the, the films um, really were about taking what seemed like mainstream films. So, for example, um, Bright Lights, Big City, um, which is about the book, and they turned it into a movie. Um, and Full Metal Jacket, um, which came out in 86 the same time all the other Vietnam movies did um, and seemed like a mainstream um, Vietnam film. Um, but when you read those things closely, um, they are actually, you know, the Full Metal Jack's uh, anti-war film. Uh, Bright Lights, Big City is extremely anti-capitalist and anti, um, you know, 80s sort of yuppie um, uh, yeah <laughs> um but it reads on first glance like a, a you know um fun kind of um yuppie silliness and there's a lot of things like that so that's that's what the book is about and it's about you know the reagan administration and um what was going on politically and economically at that particular time. So it was about how these books and these films um, were able to express um, dissent um, using the same kind of tools that mainstream books and, and film did. Yeah. And do you find it interesting and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but in the 70s, for example, we had a lot of movies with the new Hollywood movement that was in full-fledged by the 70s. And uh, you had the Vietnam War, and it ends. And you get, during the Vietnam War, but especially afterwards, you get all of these movies that are either peripherally talking about or directly talking about or against this idea. Like, what mm -hmm. led to that war? Or against um, Nixon? Or against whatever? Like, there are all of these different right. uh, aspects. And... Um, it's interesting because at that time, movies were relatively cheap. We weren't in the blockbuster era yet. Relatively, mm -hmm. I mean cheap. You know, it's like uh, they might still be like over a million dollars or whatever, but that's really cheap for a movie. And so you'd have all of these kind of new Hollywood filmmakers just doing these kind of guerrilla films and all this. And 
They might have uh, like Paul Schrader was a very, very anti-Vietnam, very all of those things type of guy. Mm -hmm. And so he would uh, make these really bummer movies, you know, like yeah. whether he was just writing them or or not. And there was like a taxi driver like you and I went to. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. We went to PCA, the the uh, conference. Um, and I had presented a paper on that actually about how taxi yeah. drivers like, uh, you know, about PTSD and mm -hmm. all of these other aspects that are kind of peripheral aspects of the movie. The narrative is not about those things, but they are a result of these things. Right. And right. so you were able to do those things. And then it's interesting because by the time we get to the eighties, we have movies like, uh, I mean, we've already had jaws in the seventies and the exorcist and star mm -hmm. Wars and, uh, Close Encounters and all these huge movies. And then we get, you know, your Indiana Jones and your E.T. and all of these huge, huge uh, 80s movies. And it seems like a lot of money is being funneled into this kind of mainstream cinema machine, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like the only people that are kind of fighting against this idea are those new Hollywood guys that are still doing those movies, but they're kind of getting buried by that point. I mean, look at someone like Robert Altman, who did MASH in 1971. Yeah. And, or 1970, maybe it was. And then uh, by the 80s, he's making these like really small movies or Popeye. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, And so you have people like Kubrick, who was around before then, that's making movies like Full Metal Jacket. But he can do that with the clout that he has. And there's a few others, you know, like uh, like uh, I think it was Oliver Stone. He did Platoon and different movies where people are kind of fighting this idea. But it's interesting that by the time you get to the 80s, those small movies are no longer an interest to this uh, studio system that realizes, oh, the money is in these big right. consumer films, right? Yeah. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, there's, <laughs> um, like, everything else in the 80s. You know, it's, um, you know, screw screw all of those that. You know, we're going to have fun. And, you know, yay, America. And, um, uh, you know, let's invade... Um, what was that? What was the war that we quote unquote won? Um, <laughs> Grenada. Grenada. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's like, let's invade Granada and like, woo, we won. It's like, no, dude, that doesn't count. That doesn't cancel out like <laughs> Vietnam. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it's that kind of mentality. And um, it, it was, that's just what was going on. It was, it was a way for America to be big again and um you know we get past the recession and we get past the oil crisis and um and everything's big and shiny and bright and um movies fell into the same thing and and books you know as well books were big and um when people still read remember that you probably don't but um books <laughs> i do books. my wife reads all the time so i'm, <laughs> I'm surrounded by that old-fashioned um, media no <laughs> yeah books still read people read books um but they were big and shiny and bright and um you know and so people like Cooper had to be sneaky they had to make films that people thought were doing the same thing but he was making these movies that um spoke against um yeah. uh he was speaking out but he was doing it in a very um smart way yeah yeah, this is actually a movie we connected on. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Full Metal Jacket because um, Full Metal Jacket's so interesting. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce the film for anyone any jackass listening who has not watched <laughs> this movie. Uh, it seems irrelevant, but I'm going to do it anyways because that's how I do it. But uh, 
Um, but it's funny because you'll know this from Ball State because I knew a lot of people that were this way. Or when I start talking about, you know, uh, Full Metal Jacket, people will be like, dude, I love the first third of that movie. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? <laughs> Those people that only I like the, the early army. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Because the end is like, you know, where all the meaning really is. Like the first part you like is only there to set up the thing you don't like. Ooh, I'll take you down <laughs> on that. Oh, man. Go ahead. No, please, please. I, I, that, that, was an, that was an off the cuff statement. So please, <laughs> please, by all means, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts against that. Um, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the whole movie is against the notion of the war machine. Right. And so. He sets up um, the first half of the movie uh, where normally what you would have is this sort of band of brothers. They're they're creating this group of, you know, oh, aren't we bonding and isn't everything great? And (laughs) and but what he's doing is he's he is very show. He's very clearly showing us the dehumanization of men. That's that's what the military does is you have to dehumanize people in order to prepare them to go over and kill people you you can't just send people into war i mean that's not with a normal um thing you know so even the very first shot of that film where they're shaving their heads. I mean, that that's a critical shot of that movie. And yeah. so the beginning that uh, where they're at camp, where they're at um, boot camp is about dehumanization. And it's about um, Joker maintaining his humanity um, in spite of every day uh, people trying to, to take it away from him. Um, but, but don't you think real quick, because I, I still don't see that as a as a disagreement with what I said. And I'm going to clarify now oh, because okay. um, because I, I everything you just said, I actually have in my notes, like the dehumanizing oh, okay. effects of U.S. Vietnam War. You know, I have like all these notes. Right. And um, and uh, that's exactly it. And I think without that, though, what I what I what I meant was if you take boot camp out. Yeah. The rest of the film may still have these moments but they are significantly less powerful because right. you have seen the process of dehumanization yeah. and then you see it backfire, right? Yeah. Cause by the end they aren't the killing machines that they were trying to set up. They just no. go back to being children. Do you they get what do. I mean? Like, um, and so I think like that's really pivotal. So people watch this first part and they're seeing the dehumanization, even if they see it as a, as a comedy, you yeah, know, like yeah. you know, but which is um, how a which lot is, of people treat it, you know. Yes, yeah, which is very intentional as well. And so, like you know, you get this dehumanization moment, and then people are willing to just turn it off. And it's just right. like, how? Like, I want to go yeah. watch it right now. I mean, <laughs> the the most brilliant scene of that movie, I think, is the bathroom scene, and not because of the suicide. You know, that's yeah. why people, that's that's the scene that people know of that movie. I'm and actually I have a whole um, sleeve of Kubrick and <laughs> I still have to add full metal jacket. And one of them is the bathroom scene because I agree with you 100 percent right now. So please tell everyone what you're talking about. Well, I the you know, you when you break down that scene and you you do the Kubrick breakdown, OK, that everything in that scene is is Kubrick, classic Kubrick. You have parallels, you have shadows, you have everything that he does is in that scene, um, the coloring. 
but what you have also is you have um uh, joker and um oh crap i forgot his name he's the guy that kills himself oh oh no um pile pile yeah and um in their underwear right they're standing there and um and then the you know drill sergeant comes in and he has (laughs) he puts on his hat like it gives him authority but he's basically in his jammies and it's it's the most vulnerable um like human moment of the entire movie i mean it's just it's so um delicate and and um humanizing and and painfully um bare it's like that it's it's a bearing of a soul really yeah. all of them all i three mean by that them. point by that point private pile is a sore right like he's a sore on the skin of his life so to speak yeah and now he's he's raw right he, if, you yeah. get, if you get what i mean by that i analogy. do and you see, you know, and then to have them in there and their underwear and it's just so open and, and, you know, it's almost childish. It's almost like they're all children in that scene, but, even Joel Sargent. But even and, think about the idea of the bathroom being such a vulnerable place too. Exactly. You, know you, yeah. you can't, there, you know, there is really nowhere else where you're more vulnerable as a human. Um so yeah, all it, it's just this moment, and people miss that because it's the big scene where he kills himself and he kills, you know, he kills the drill sergeant. And it's, um, you, you can miss all of that, and I, I just find it like this, uh, you know, in a way, it's so beautiful and um, so ugly at the same time. I just yeah, um, that is like full metal jacket to me that scene yeah Um, i feel like um because that's kind of the end of of an act so to speak right like that scene which is because immediately after that they're at it like they're They're, yeah and what i find so cool is we watch the dehumanization process and then the most horrific moment up to that point is the most human which is also very interesting that's the what you just described yeah but don't you think it's so interesting how I'm not going to say bookend because it's not the very beginning, um, but we almost get a reflection of that in Joker at the very end, whenever they're confronted with the person that just shot at them, the woman mm-hmm. who yeah. shot in that building, they finally find her and they shoot her mm-hmm. and she's just gasping and eventually she dies. And there's that shot where it's, it's upward, if I remember correctly, at Joker and yeah. he's just horrified, yes. right? And it's like, that's frozen? like a really, yeah, that's like a really vulnerable moment to me as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when I think of vulnerability, I like that. Like there, it's almost like, I'm not saying this is true, but it, in my mind, it just reminds me in that moment that like Joker is almost like experiencing Pyle's descent. Do you get what I'm saying? Like there's almost a. Uh, um, it's not the same. That's why I'm saying I'm not saying that as a a hard statement, but mm-hmm. it's further dehumanizing while also as a film showing us 
the most human parts of these people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. you see him and he's, he's completely frozen. Yeah. Um, uh, and you also see, I mean, there's a lot about that movie where that I like that it's not a war movie, right? We, we don't see the enemy, right? Quote, you know, we don't see, um, fight scenes we don't see battles um really at all there's there's one every time we see the vietnamese they're dead um except for there's a brief scene i um when they attack the um during the ceasefire but we don't really see faces and so to see her um alive is very important um and it's also one of the few times that he changed that Kubrick changes the camera's point of view. So yeah. anytime camera the Kubrick changes camera the angles, it's important. Um, and he only does it three times, I think, in in Full Metal Jacket. So yeah, it's you know, yeah, it's yeah. very similar. You're right. Yeah, that that kind of idea, uh, the flipping of perspectives, reminds me of the scene in The Shining. Where Jack Nicholson mm. is 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 uh is praying, or, or, or he's uh he's like the predator and Shirley Mc or Shirley MacLaine, um I just see I just said Shirley MacLaine just spaced her name now, um Shelley Duvall is yeah. uh, backing up with the bat and she's just kind of crying because uh she's just in real life been through the ringer, <laughs> yeah, uh, working with Kubrick let alone in the movie in the scene. Um, but that scene is incredible. He's just the guy. I mean, you and I connected yeah. on Kubrick early on because he's just my favorite guy. Yeah. Um, he's just he's just the best. A another thing about Full Metal Jacket too, just to get like uh, uh, a bit more, I guess, like on a critical lens rather than an academic, is just the the idea of how it was made. Like if you watch yes. behind the scenes stuff, oh yeah, it's like incredible to watch like everything right. that Kubrick did and know that this was all like some weird chess master putting all these pieces together. You know what I mean? Right. Like a guy made this. Like everything we're saying, this was like a thing a guy did on purpose. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I mean, oh, man, I just there's wish no somebody. Jungle, there's no jungle scenes. There's, um, it's all like East, East England. I mean, East London, you know, Isle of Dogs. Um, you know, the rice paddy scenes are in like some canal in London and like they flew in palm trees. Some of them are fake. You know, it's like yeah. he totally created this world and um, that further disconnects it from it being a war film. I think it's so pristine. It's 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 to me, it's like it's his best film. Yeah. It's always funny when people ask me because I people ask me what my favorite movie is in my in my office uh, at work. I just have like movie posters just scattered mm -hmm. all over the wind, all over the walls. And so when students come in to talk to me, they'll, uh, you know, they'll always say like, so you're a movie guy, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, big time, big time. How'd you know? <laughs> you know, because there's like all my film books and stuff are in my office because I don't yeah. want to keep them at the house. You know, all that. So it's just like everything is movies. And um uh, it, it's funny whenever they say that because they'll say, and this is probably going to be a hard question, but what's your favorite movie? You know, and sometimes I'll just like escape that question because I'm I'm starting to reevaluate that. But I do go, well, I can tell you this: my favorite filmmaker is a guy named Stanley Kubrick. Have you seen The Shining? Because that's the first one I'm assuming they would know. Right. And then like I'll usually talk about a few more, 
Um, but it's it's funny because whenever they say like is the shining your favorite, my default is usually full metal jacket. Yeah. But I like I like can't say that for sure because I love him so much. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> so it's like there's like a handful of movies where I'm like, any of these could be it. So whenever I make a list, I usually just have one space in my top ten for Kubrick. Yeah. And I'll just throw like one of them in. But Full Metal Jacket is usually the one I kind of toss in because even if I find the other ones equally or even slightly more entertaining, this one just impresses me so much mm-hmm. on every level. You know what yeah. I mean? Um yeah, he's he's impressive. Uh, again, guys, this is Full Metal Jacket, 1987, directed by Stanley Kubrick, uh, written by Stanley Kubrick, Michael Herr, Gustav Hosford, uh, stars Matthew Modine, Arlie Ermey, Vincent D'Onofrio, Adam Baldwin, Dorian Harewood, and Arliss Howard. Uh, it was released July 10th, 1987, a weekend after July 4th, which makes me think, coincidence? Uh- <laughs> I think not. <laughs> I mean, it seems too perfect, right? Yeah. Um, but man, this was a movie that was made for uh, somewhere between, I couldn't find a, a hard number, so somewhere between 16 and $30 million, which sounds so low. They don't even make movies that cheap anymore. Like, they just yeah. don't waste their time. And it made $120 million in the box office. If you want to check this movie out, go check it out at HBO Max. It is streaming there. But there's another movie I have to move on to, because we showed this in our controversy in American we Cinema did. Class. We did. When I was and, younger and bolder and uh, <laughs> and cared oh, more, my, my, <laughs> I wouldn't show it now. Oh, why? Because the best part of that is we had de- we developed this thing, which you had a lot of those ideas already in place, you know. And yeah. so, um, and so we we kind of like developed this thing. And one of the things is like we were just like we're going to be bold. We don't yeah. care if the students even like these movies. <laughs> we're going to show them. Like all of this crap, right? We're doing and it. So, we're doing yeah. it. Yeah. And I was even doing like outside screenings of movies outside the era we were talking about. And yeah. We were just getting wild. I was showing funny games and Man Bites Dog and like really I know. fucked up stuff. Like I've shown <laughs> I've shown funny games in class, but I'm Man Bites Dog. I've talked about it, but I'm like, I'm I, nope. And I am yeah. I have I have full professor, you know. I'm like promoted and tenured and I still won't show it in class. I'm like, no way, man. <laughs> It's so funny, but this one, man, I just remember as soon as it turned on, you have this kind of cheesy music. It's low. It's low. It's like low five video pretty much. Right. And I just remember like hearing this silent groan in the demeanors of everyone like, oh, it's another one of these. Just so everyone knows, (laughs) because just so everyone and, and we had set them up for that because we had some really good ones up front. Mm-hmm. Um and then it turned into like um what's the uh the Al Pacino one we showed where he infiltrates as a detective or something the uh, uh oh, gay cruising. community cruising I've yeah still, I've still I still show that yeah so we had we had cruising yeah. people did not like that movie that was no, nobody <laughs> that did it. not get over at all it is a terrible um, movie yeah yeah it's not great so it, it it's interesting though because we had a series of movies like that though so yeah. they get to this one they're just like oh fuck <sighs> and you can just see him deflate. <laughs> and but by halfway through, their demeanor turns into what the fuck are we watching? What is wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. This is uh this movie that I'm being very cryptic about is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer from 1986. It was directed by John McNaughton, written by Richard Fire. What a name, Richard Fire and John McNaughton. Uh, cast is Michael Rooker. He's really the one <laughs> you'll know. Uh, but Tracy Arnold and Tom Towles is uh 
is uh, are there too. Uh, it was released. Check. I love this. I'm sure you know this already, Ashley. But September 24th, 1986, at the Chicago International Film Festival. Yeah. But it did not get a wide release until 1990. Yeah. Almost exactly to the month. Uh, four years later, which is crazy. I'm not surprised, but yeah, <laughs> um, no, me neither. But it was uh, made for $110,000. It made approximately 609000 so at least made its money back. Um, if you're interested after we talk about this and watching this, you can watch it on Peacock Premium and the Criterion Channel if you have either. I'll just say this real quick, and then I'm going to pass it to you because I just want to know why you love this so much and why we showed this to the class. I mean, I know why, but I mean, just like <laughs> talk about why we chose this because... Uh, Henry likes to kill people, guys. This is Michael Rooker. Henry likes to kill people, and in different ways each time. Henry shares an apartment with Otis, uh, and when Otis is... He's so gross. And then when Otis's sister comes to stay, uh, we see both sides of Henry, the guy next door, and the serial killer. This is such a weird movie. The scene that comes to mind, and I'm just going to bring this up, and then I'm passing it to you. The scene that comes to mind is the scene where they have, I, I believe they have a video camera. And they go to, like, they find these women at a bar or something? No, they, say. it was a family house. A family home. A family home. Yeah, they, and, they did a family break. They broke into a family home. Oh, that's right. That's right. And then they have the camera. Uh, and then it, it's like man bites dog. It's horrible. <laughs> like it's, since it's, we just talked about it, it's really hard to watch. That's the moment, actually. Now that I, yeah. it's kind of in the middle of the movie, I don't think it's like the very end, is it? No. It's like uh -uh. yeah. So like it was when that hit. That's when I remember the demeanors of the students going, "The fuck are we watching?" Yeah. And why? then it's just why, kind Donnelly, of wild. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you show that? And why do you why do you have such an affinity for this movie? <laughs> um. I, I saw this movie in graduate school. Um, my, I had a professor who um, was really a Tom McNaughton. I mean, he has only done like two films, right? He's or one. Um, and this film, I mean, some people talk about this film like it is sort of a um, kind of who's the serial killer it was in chicago um john wayne gacy. gacy kind of but i really don't see it that way okay i see it as is it's mcnaughton's um you know discussion of um of henry you know it's this this really intimate look at um, a psychopath. I mean, he's he is a psychopath. He's not a sociopath. He's a psychopath. Um, he has no self control, um, and he that's that's why he kills people in different ways, and he doesn't um, plan. You know, he just you see him sitting in a mall parking lot, for example, and eight people walk by, and he follows the ninth. Right. And yeah. that's the person he chooses to kill. And he, um, you watch him the whole time. He, he's the, there's no protagonist in the movie. Um, Henry's the person we follow. And this is way, way, way before Dexter. 
this is way before any of these like anti-hero shows right but there's no redeeming qualities of any of the characters in the movie <laughs> none absolutely not a single solitary one they're disgusting all of them um and henry you know he he just he does what he does and i don't know why he lives without i think it's oh it's because they, they both got out of jail and they live in this apartment together. And Otis is a sociopath. I mean, a psychopath, but he's also got some other stuff going on. Like, he's pretty gross. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very pretty, gross. Yeah. <laughs> he's very gross. He's, he's got some other things going on. Um, and, and Henry tolerates him, but Henry scares him. So he's able to sort of maintain control of Otis. And um, he's kind of like the boss, right? But Otis is, when Otis gets out of control, Henry reigns him in. But they just, that's what they do. It's just they, they go around killing people. And um, it's its filmed, it's it's got like a blue lens. Do you remember the coloring? The color, yeah. the shading of the film is, is um, it's like a home movie. It's yes. not shaky, um, but it's it's really like um, not even like a boot a B movie, but it's like just shot. It just, it's like they shot it with like a camcorder or something. Yeah, it's you know like somebody. Like it's just real it lo-fi. Yeah, it's like somebody was following them around and shooting this movie. So you're it's like you're watching it's like a very very early version of man by stock um so you're watching this character and you can't help but become immersed in his life and i think that's what it was that drew me to this movie is mcnaughton had a way of drawing you into henry's life and it's not that you wanted him to get away with anything but you couldn't, you didn't have anybody else in the movie to go to because Otis was so gross. And then so when, when Otis's sister comes in to town, um, at first you kind of are sympathetic towards her because she's a sympathetic character at the beginning. Um, and she obviously has a crush on Henry and she doesn't know his, his deal. And, um, you know, she's, she's been abused physically, mentally, sexually by her family, by her brother, by her dad. And she's had to leave her child to come to Chicago to try and get a job. And she's living with Otis and Henry, which does not bode well. And we know that, but she doesn't. Um, and she has these conversations with Henry and, he tells her about his past, right? She gets him to open up. And uh, first she asks, first she tells him, oh, Otis told me that you, what is it? You stabbed your mother or something. And that's why you were in jail. And he said, yeah, I stabbed my mother because she did this, this, and this. And she's like, oh, that's so terrible. You're so sympathetic. You know, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. 
And then half an hour later, she talks to him again and he tells her a different story. Yeah. And you realize that nobody's ever going to know who he is or why he does what he does. Um, it's almost but, like uh, the Dark Knight with the Joker, where there's a point where he goes, you want to know how I got these scars? Yeah. And he, like every time he tells like a different story. So you have this like unreliable storyteller, right? Yeah. But this is similar in, in a different way. But like what you're describing, it's, yeah. it's similar. So you're drawn into this movie, but you realize you have no idea what's going on and you're completely, <laughs> totally lost. And then you realize that Otis is abusive towards his sister and, you know, Henry loses his mind and stops it. And um, you kind of are like, oh, well, maybe he's not that bad of a guy, right? Well, yeah, I think he killed kind of, like 30 people, but maybe he's not that bad of a guy. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it really is that Dexter thing almost in this moment where uh, yeah. Otis is so much grosser right than henry right yeah he's (laughs) so horrible i mean i mean henry's terrible right but like we see it's just so easy on the surface to just see otis as this really like level 10 disgusting human yeah and and in comparison to henry henry's not as seemingly not as bad right as otis also we as viewers are conditioned to murder on screen so right. I think it feels less effective than Otis trying to abuse his sister, right. which we can see as a universal no-no, right? Right. And when you see Henry de- jump in and defend her, you kind of go, oh, okay, well, since he's the only person that we have to follow in the film, maybe he is the protagonist. But then when you sort of realize um, in this just viscerally disgusting way that she's complicit with her brother um you no longer can trust her as a narrator um and that is a turning point for the viewer like you're i mean victims are are never um you know you should never turn on a victim but but it's not that she at this point in the film is a victim she's a lot she's complicit with her brother she's allowing this to happen almost it's a very complicated scene um but then henry kills him and it's kind of like okay well otis is gone but um, but I'm, I jumped ahead. So, yeah, um, Otis and Henry break into a family home with a mother and father and, and child. And it's it's a horrifying um, scene. And they have a video camera, which I can't remember where they got it, but they have the horror the, and they film it. And yeah, I um, think Otis like went to some like either he killed the guy at a secondhand shop. Yeah, or, or he like threatened the guy. Like something happened where he just like walked out with a camera. I'm yeah, sure. he managed to get it, and it was, uh, yeah, it was unexpected. But he brought it, and he he's the one that instigated the filming. And then 
you see him watching the the murder over and over and over again and you realize what McNaughton is doing which is it's very it's a meta moment which now you know as film has progressed we've seen that and we're used to it but in 1986 that was new that was a new um and very powerful um message um and uh very painful to watch and even henry was upset he said turn it off turn it i think he ended up breaking the tv um because otis wouldn't stop watching it he's like that's that's gross you know he didn't say that's gross but he was like that we're not watching that anymore and he destroyed the television and then eventually he ends up killing otis so becky sees him as this sort of hero and one of the most interesting things about this movie is that there's absolutely no presence of jurisprudence okay there's no police there's no fbi there's no is he gonna get caught is somebody onto him does he almost get caught does he get chased does he no there's never you don't see a police car you don't see a side you don't hear a siren you don't think oh my gosh he almost got caught never nothing not once yeah it's- i think that's a big reason though why um our students didn't really gravitate toward this yeah because even though they're like surprised midway especially with the breaking Mm -hmm. in of the house it's kind of like one you're in some way because we are a lot of us might be vulnerable enough to be interested in his life and be or rather fascinated maybe not interested but like we're fascinated with henry and we see him do the thing where he where he um, he protects the sister, mm-hmm. right, and all of that. And uh, but there's really never a moment where he's a good guy. No, not but not because once. we not once. But where we where, but I could see some people watching it and being like, "Are you trying to make me care about this guy? Like, are you yeah. trying to make it a, him a good guy?" And it's like, no, that's like kind of the point. It just that's- there's no good guys. There's um, not a good point. And at the end, you see, you know, he promises Becky, okay, we'll leave, we'll go. And you see him with that suitcase. And you know what's in the suitcase. Yeah. But part of you wants that not to be the case. Yeah. That, you know, he's what he's done. But there's a, there's a small part of you that thinks, Maybe he's changed, you know, that you can't help it because he's the only thing you have to follow in the movie. But, you know, good and well, he's murdered. Becky put her in a suitcase and stuck her in the back of his car. Um, (laughs) And you're watching this going, I know this is what's happened. But part of me really wants him to get away. Like, and it's you it's more of a a viewer experience i think this film where you have to really examine your expectations and your um understanding of violence and your understanding of the way you watch film and the way that you watch violent films um and mcnaughton has created a film unlike any other film 
I've ever seen before. Um, and it's a, it just makes you think so hard. Um, it's not quality. Okay. It's not a happy movie by any means. And I, I wouldn't call it a, um, I wouldn't call it a bad movie because it's such an intellectually and well done film. It's not particularly well shot. It's not. Um, yeah, the audio enjoyable. is shitty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It, it and it makes you kind of sick. But McNaughton's. Um, There's a reason for PG seventeen. Uh, <laughs> oh, Tom told me it's the reason for PG seventeen. <laughs> that movie. <laughs> um, it it makes you uh, totally reevaluate the way that you think about film. And um, I haven't seen anything like that before. Yeah. You know, things yeah. have followed since like, like funny games. Um, and other well, I was going to bring up funny games actually, because that's what, that's what it reminds me of. Cause that movie is obviously so much more complex than what a surface level watch of that movie would give you. Right. You know, cause I mean, not only is it this guy who made a movie and he's like, oh, OK, cool. You like movies like this. Let me show you what the fuck this really is. You know, what mm. I mean, like like I'm going to make you watch this now. Like it's such an yeah underlying art film. Right. But on top yeah. of that, I love the the U.S. version, which I showed um, after class, because think of the I additional meanings. One. Well, think of the additional like meaning that is then attached the same filmmaker remade his own film 10 years later in America. So it's already challenging kind of the bourgeoisie, right? And then he does it in the most capitalist place in the world. (laughs) So it's like, it's, it's, uh, and then it ends so bummer, which is not unlike Henry, right? Yeah. Um, But then you even have movies. And I remember in uh, 1960, I did uh, in one of Wes Gehring's classes, I did uh, a paper, a kind of a compare contrast of sorts between Psycho and um, Peeping Tom. Have you seen Peeping Tom? No. Peeping Tom came out like a few months before. It's a British film, and it's by a guy named Michael Powell. And Michael Powell used to work with a guy named Emmerich Pressburger, and they used to be a duo, and they would make movies. And um, they did all kinds of stuff. The Red Shoes. They made the um, the uh, Thief of Baghdad, the 1940s version, which was kind of the basis of Aladdin. Um, a lot of stuff like that. And uh, Michael Powell did his own movie in 1960 and it's Peeping Tom. And it's about this guy who is a cameraman and uh, like a photographer. And he, he, he has a movie camera and he actually murders people with his camera because his tripod is has like a he can take the end of the leg off and it's a blade yeah. and he like kills people and he films them. This is 1960. This ruined his career. Like he was essentially retired. Um, it's like yeah, they, okay. it retired him. It came out the same time Psycho did, though. And if you watch both of them, I don't feel like neither one is on the surface any more fucked up than the other. You know? um, like if you watch yeah. it, I think Psycho is actually more disturbing. But uh, but narratively, it's interesting because Peeping Tom, not only is it using the camera, which is a very intentional um, kind of uh, a message, I guess, uh, but also it make it forces you to sympathize with the killer. Because yeah. he has a lot of issues from abuse and stuff from his childhood. And you learn about these things. 
And then you're left there like, why do I care about this bad guy? Like, I'm yeah. not a bad person. You know what I mean? Right. And that's what you made me think of when we're talking about Henry. Never in a million years do you go that far with Henry. We know he's a bad guy the whole time. Yeah. But there he, is this kind of strange fascination with him that yeah. almost makes me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't feel, you don't ever want to like him, but you you do have to reevaluate why you watch movies and why you watch violence and why you get in why you engage with things like this otis's watching of the murders um really drives that home and if you were to, if that were to be made now it would seem like a hitting you over the head kind of stuff but in when he made it in the 80s i mean it, it was it was extremely powerful well let me let me touch on that before we move forward in 1986, when this was released, we had Top Gun, Hoosiers, Labyrinth, hmm. um, Stand By Me, yeah, uh, you know uh, the Stallone, the stellar Stallone movie Cobra. Uh, we had John Hughes movies. We had Short Circuit. I mean, think of all these movies yeah. and then throw that in the mix, right? Right. Or even whenever it was had a, a wider release in '90, we still had movies like uh, Steven Seagal movies. Yeah. Uh, we had Goodfellas and we had Awakenings and Jacob's Ladder, which, again, all some of these can be disturbing in their own right. Edward Scissorhands, Crybaby, uh, Days of Thunder, but like Dances with Wolves and, and Total Recall. Like think of Total Recall, this big kind of like blockbuster yeah. of sorts. Yeah. Right. And then you have this like fucked up little hundred and ten thousand dollar movie. And it's like, how can audiences even like fathom this movie at that time? Yeah. Because it would still be two more years before Man Bites Dog comes out. And that never got a wide release here. That was just no, a festival darling, you know? That, um, so, yeah, that that is a very, um, that is not, that the American audience knowledge of that film is is almost none. I mean, that's that's a art, that's a film nerd movie is what that is, you know? Yeah, the, the, um, the people that showed up for that actually had a fun time with it because it's funny because it's like a dark comedy, but it's, it's so, so well fucked done. up. It's like, how do you laugh at this? You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I had a hard time with that movie, and I, I can pretty much watch anything but that movie. There's times when I have to leave the room um, it's rough. because it's and I mean, I can watch funny games backward and forward. A Man Bites Dog is um, there's a couple of times I just can't watch it. It, yeah. it's just too um it's too much um yeah. because there's the levity of it is not balanced i don't think i don't feel like there's enough um uh meaning to the film to balance the levity of it does that make yeah. sense yep i understand yeah well Switching gears here. Okay. Right. Going back. Uh, I, I can't do math right now, but all the way to the summer of love, 1969, we have ah. Easy Rider. Yeah. Directed by Dennis Hopper, written by Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern. Uh, the cast, Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonda, and Dennis Hopper are the most notable names. Uh, release date was July 14th, 1969. This was just a New York release. The budget was three hundred sixty thousand, but it made sixty million dollars for the sixties. Yeah. That's insane. That is insane. Unfortunately, this isn't streaming anywhere at the moment. But uh, 
you can rent this wherever you want to rent things online. That's fine if you're interested in seeing it. Uh, I'm not even going to do a synopsis for this because this is all about like some hippie bikers trying to cross country with some drugs. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's a lot more than that, though. This is a this is a wild movie. The more that I learn about it. there's a great documentary series and even better books. Um, but Easy Riders Raging Bulls is a, a documentary if you just want to watch it. The book's excuse me, the book's better, but the documentary is a good comprehensive thing. I'm pretty sure it's that one. It might have been a movie called The Decade Under the Influence, but uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, that doc is awesome. And uh, they talk about Easy Rider, of course, and it's all about the new Hollywood movement. And uh, there's a point where Dennis Opera kept trying to get studios to like let him just make movies, and everyone's like, "Fuck off, guy!" And yeah. so he like he like went to some like B movie dude. I always I always want to think, um, I can't remember the dude's name right now. But anyways, I always want to think it was like this bigger guy. But the more I think of it, I actually have no idea who he went to off the top of my head. But the point is, they were just like, "Here's two hundred fifty, or well." Uh, yeah, here's like $250,000 in a camera. Just go make something <laughs> like just make sure I get my money back. It was like one of those sort of things. Yeah. Um, and then they made this movie that has like just changed so many things. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's, it's really interesting. What about this? Cause all these titles I'm talking about, the ones that I'm specifically naming are movies that you kind of listed as movies that kind of reshaped or at least refocused how you, uh, either look at aspects of movies or movies as a whole. They've kind of shaped the lens in mm-hmm. which you watch. And what about Easy Rider did this? Easy Rider really, I think, was one of the first films that taught me how to really read film the way that you read literature. Um, like taking a film and understanding it as a text. Um, and it's like like a lot of films it is not a it's not a great movie okay it has a wonderful um purpose and a and a fantastic um meaning and you know coming out in 69 when it did the timing of it um it's everything about the film in, in in that regard is fantastic uh my students hate it um they absolutely hate it um because it it has the experimental psychedelic scenes you know it has uh, so much in it that they don't understand there's a commune scene um uh you know the dying commune of, of 69 and um just there's just so much in it that that, that they don't understand but it's a quintessential American film and and it is so of its time so it taught me about context and it taught me about um um understanding the importance of place and time and um and metaphor and you know I mean just everything that you need to know to read a film and um i learned so much just from that movie and it stands out as the movie to sort of teach people how to read film i mean you know um it's it's kind of like when you want to teach people about american literature you 
you everybody has a specific book that they know that they this is the book that you should read this is the book that I'm I like to teach to teach people how to read literature um this is the movie that I like to use to teach people how to read film and um not it's not to people's tastes especially now I mean students don't understand um the importance of it but they want to explain what's what is happening you know that at least they can understand that um they don't enjoy it but um it's like vegetables i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's good for you yeah 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 like like uh my daughter evie doesn't really like uh, all vegetables but if you give her the ones she likes she'll 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 knock them out you know what i mean (laughs) Right. It's like there are some movies where a lot of film students they'll find those things that they can digest. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And then there are other things where like I don't even want to touch this. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like yeah. I don't want to mess with that. Um, but it's interesting. Quick history lesson. So in 1966, the production code ended, but right before that, in 1965, Arthur Penn um created a movie called Mickey One. Okay, and Mickey One is kind of considered the first of the new Hollywood movies, even though the uh, production code hadn't died. I'm getting to a point with easy writer here so um it's it's interesting because when arthur pin made this trying to make essentially a french new wave movie here um it kind of set off these uh a a series of other movies right and so there were several other movies that were considered in this movement we showed some of them in our classes uh stuff like the graduate Mm -hmm. um and of course midnight cowboy came out the same year as easy rider but you know there were these other movies like that that were out at the time so it's not like easy rider was like the only movie kind of doing this experimental stuff however easy rider was the one that i feel like out of all of them changed the game do you get what i'm saying yeah like that that's what makes it so quintessential regardless of how one feels about it whether they like it or not that's the one that like took it further that's the one right. that did so much with so little, right? Yeah. Um, and even the way they shot it and the way that it was done, you see that kind of technique and that kind of, I'll even say like courage uh, throughout the 70s even, you know, because yeah. uh, my understanding is, um, and both in documentaries and everything I've read, they were actually like tripping out at the end of that movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that, that was like... That would not surprise me. I mean, they were high the whole time they were doing it. So, yeah, that yeah. would not surprise me. Because that's what happens when you give Hopper and company a camera and just say, just go make a thing. Um, they're going to get wild. Into it, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but then if you watch something like Mike Nichols' uh, The Graduate, it's like, yeah, it's incredible and it's different because the production code's gone, so there's more freedom. Right. But it's not the same as this. Like, this is... Yeah so different so that's kind of where like easy writer sits with me is it's just like a really specific point in time Mm -hmm. where you can look at it and go wow this is them really doing something different yeah you know what i'm saying like strikingly different i feel like i could i could teach very similar things by using midnight cowboy but um easy writer there's so much more about america and about the particular time um and place um and um the idea of the end of the hippie era and the end of a kind of freedom that was really just lost i mean and the end of that movie is uh you know just so 
um, the shock of it is perfect, you know, and the the whole thing. I mean, because Easy Rider and Edmund, like Hobbley in their own way, have a lot in common. They do. But I think they feel very different, but they have they, a lot in common in terms as a as texts. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they use some of the same techniques, but in terms of teaching about American cinema in particular, uh, Easy Rider is a great piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting uh, to kind of juxtapose that with the last film you told me about, because I'm really curious to see how this fits in. And that is Ah. The Devil Wears Prada from 2006, directed by (laughs) David Frankel. Um, And it's written by, uh, Aline Broche McKenna, based on the book of the same name by Lauren Weisberger. Uh, cast is Anne Hathaway. I forgot about this movie until you yeah. brought this up. Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep, Adrian uh, Grenier, Grenier. I don't know how they uh, pronounce their name, but Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci. It was released June 30th, 2006, with a budget of 35 to $41 million. Made $326 million. I remember this being a huge deal when it came out. Yeah. And I pl- I've played metal and like hardcore music my whole life. So uh, there was a band called The Devil Wears Prada, and that's what I always associated with that mm. name, not the book or the movie, because I just wasn't I was too hardcore for that, you know. So <laughs> but this this one really stands out to me, though. Um, like, why would I, I put I, that in my list of movies? Yeah, but I, I want to preface this because this might actually lead in kind of to what we're going to talk about. Maybe I'm way off, but I do want to say this. I remember in your 204 class, you made us you bastard. You made us watch Twilight New Moon. <laughs> I did. And in totally our did. in our gender and sexuality class, we chose and because by this point I understood why you did. Yeah. Um, we did like how to lose a guy in 10 days. And like there were these kind yeah. of like very typical romantic yeah. comedies and things like that. And I learned these are such great examples to show students because the the kind of uh, the messages, the latent messaging, the mm-hmm. all of these kind of underlying subtextual things are so surface and obvious. Yeah. These stereotypes and the way that people are portrayed that you can show anyone. I remember in our class when we showed how to lose a guy in 10 days, everyone got what we were talking about. Like yeah, they were it's, calling it's it so out. Easy. Yeah. So easy. So it sucks when you're a film student because all you want to do is watch the classics. And instead you're watching fucking twilight new moon that was really I was just mean. like that was probably one of the meanest things i've done but i have was seen so gossip bad girl. did i make you watch gossip girl because that's that's one we of my watched favorites. an episode of gossip girl yeah, yeah, that, yeah that was my favorite exercise yeah yeah but so i my assumption is that and you can genuinely like uh the devil wears prada but my no. assumption is it's similar in that way where it yeah. does that work is that a good guess or, or well, why this I, movie I got asked to teach a um, uh, feminist film theory class um, when I was doing my PhD um, at one of the universities that I was working for. And um, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And so I was grabbing films and I had seen, um, I think I had seen the movie and I was like, whoa, that's not appropriate, you know, because everybody <laughs> loved this movie. I mean, this movie yeah. is still people still talk about this movie. Um, but I played it for my students. So they're like, oh, it's a great movie. And I'm like, OK, did we not notice this, this, this? 
I mean, there's so much wrong with this movie and it's, it's really um, just uh, horrifying. And in some ways um, in terms of if you, if you do a feminist reading of the film. And so it was, even though I had done and quite a bit of, you know, feminist theory and, and things like that, it was really the first time a film had, I was able to teach a film in a film in a, in a, in a feminist film class um, that wasn't obvious, you know, that, that didn't make students go, oh my God, this film is terrible. Uh, they're like, this is a great film. And I'm like, really, let's go through it. Um, and have them be completely horrified by the end of the analysis. And, um, and I thought it was great. You know, I was yeah. just like, oh, I love this. I want to do this all the time. Um, because it's one thing to show like hard candy. Like I think in that class I showed hard candy and I showed, um, you know, films that were uh, quintessential, like written about um, by feminist theorists, you know, films that were yeah. um, uh, made to be um, feminist films. But I showed this one that women love, you know, and um, really started digging into it. And it was the first time I think I'd ever really done that. And um, sort of not only did it wake up a, a part of my brain that was like, oh, I need to start paying more attention to like the really powerful latent um, heteronormative patriarchal crap that we see all the time, you know, um, and love and accept as women. I mean, this was a film made for women and it really, um, if you think about it that way, and it's it's not good you know this is not a movie i want um my daughter to aspire to this is not a movie that i want um you know girls and and uh, women to think that this is great this is uh this is good for me no 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 it's not um you know there's there's one scene in particular um there's a guy that's interested in Anne Hathaway and there in France and Paris um, and they're sort of dancing around a light post and she's she's been drinking they both been drinking and um, he's like oh you know come on you know you want to kiss me and she's like no and and she must say no like four or five times and he continues to push the issue and eventually gets her in bed. That is not an appropriate thing to put in a movie <laughs> yeah. um, at all, you know, and, and once but in terms student... of social in terms of socially acceptable things at that point in time, it was such an easy thing to overlook exactly. until you start to understand, oh, wait, this is like really this is like yeah yeah exactly this is like coercion yeah it's socially acceptable coercion and yeah. and to show my students that and have them go that's not okay because they know that it's, that's not okay but to but see it's it funny. 
it's, it's funny. funny in the film. <laughs> Isn't he cute? Like, and then you tell them this is what's happening, and they're like, oh, no, 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 that's not okay at all. Yeah, um, but you also it, just brought up another thing. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but you brought up no. another really important thing. The uh, He's so cute. If the guy mm-hmm. wasn't attractive, they'd probably yeah. see that as a major issue. Do you get what yeah. I'm saying? Right. I love this. Continue. I'm sorry. No, but it, it's just things like that. And it, it was the, really the first time that I was able to take um, such a big film, such a successful film and, and go, this is extremely problematic. And, and, um, if this is problematic, then I have a lot more work to do. And, um, and it, it opened up a whole field of, of study that that's really become important to me. Yeah. Um, Hollywood's made it really easy in past, uh, in recent years, uh, especially (laughs) where you can pick these movies that have made a billion dollars and go, Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about this movie because enough people went to see this that it made that much money, which means it is influencing a lot of people. So let's talk about, you know, how important this was. Like when I was doing stuff on war movies and I looked at the top three highest grossing post 9-11 war movies and uh, just take, for example, just American Sniper made more than every war film combined. Yeah. Like before it, right? Um, Right. At least post 9-11. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just like these shocking statistics I was coming up with. And that movie is mm-hmm. so problematic in my opinion. So it was like really interesting to kind of explore these things. But another thing though, with the devil wears Prada and your students going, that was such a good movie is like, it is so hard. I was this guy too. It is so hard to, uh, you know, break their dreams and make them understand that, uh, that entertainment is not the purpose of academia like oh that's this become is not... much easier for me um <laughs> well, no 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 no. i don't mean hard as in it's difficult for me to do i am very yeah. happy to take the sledgehammer to it but i mean yeah. it's hard to get people to see past yeah. their personal perspectives yeah. to see a text and be able to draw evidence from it to make right. a point right yeah um and that's why it was so fun teaching classes with you because we had upper level students who've been yeah. through that breaking of dreams right <laughs> Yeah. Well, the dream breaker. You're Dr. Doom for a reason, right? You know, I'm really, I'm really, I've been teaching graduate students for so long and now I'm teaching um, sophomores and freshmen and I'm having so much fun because they haven't been exposed to me yet. And I'm like, yeah. hi, I'm here to destroy all of your fun and you'll never enjoy um, entertainment again. And Here's Twilight it's, New it's, Moon. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, you'll hate everything when you leave here and it's 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 refreshing you know it's like oh now now they hate commercials um you know i've ruined everything (laughs) do you still show that documentary i think it was you uh about like ads and about how like women are positioned and men are positioned Um, and it just reinforces like messaging yeah because they love it they love codes of gender That, that taught me a lot actually yeah. like that was a really pivotal moment in the education of breaking the entertainment versus like oh i see that there are things like subtextually happening here you know? yeah yeah it's a this good semester doc. we're doing one on sports and i can't wait to just crush all their dreams <laughs> i'm so excited it's like it's about like sports and militarization and um i'm like because you know how important sports is in the department and i'm just yeah. like Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. 
Just to uh, uh, to wrap up here, though, I, I do want to talk about something that you focus on a lot these days, from what I understand, and that's TV shows. Yeah. And I just want to say, I, I don't I don't know if you like or watch this, and I can't wait for you to be like that movie's so problematic or that TV show. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just enjoying it right now. Um, I'm watching Peaky Blinders right now. You I watch haven't watched yet? it. I haven't this, watched. I it. kid you not, this is like the greatest show I've ever seen. Um, I I mean, okay, not really, but it is the best show I've seen since I watched like True Detective season three and then the first season. And then before that, The Wire, like like that is the gaps of time. I I liked a lot of good shows, but not there's like a top tier that only very few shows reach. Yeah. You know, and and um, I'm just curious, you know, what are what are you watching with TV? Is this enjoyment or is this? academic and you're just killing yourself watching season after season of something um okay there's two things happening um and it's because largely because of covid i mean you know we didn't have a lot to do so it's like we burned through netflix and and hulu and um now we're sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel i would say um but I, we haven't gotten of, to peaky blinders yet all right just keep um, that in mind we'll see you know it's it's really hard and it drives it drives tom crazy because he's like can we watch this and i'm like no that's work um so if it's <laughs> he's like can we watch a movie i'm like no that's work um you know he wants to watch good stuff but i'm like no that's too hard that's work Tom and um, I can have a Netflix party. Yeah, right? I mean, he re- he's like, can we watch this? It's, it's, I really want to see it. I'm like, no, that's work. That's too hard. Um, but uh, TV is what I've been writing on, um, mostly. I did a, a book with a friend on Manhunter, which isn't a TV show. I don't know why I said that. Um, Dexter, you know, the new Dexter. Um, Oof. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's real terrible. Uh, it's not good at all, but it's important <laughs> um, because yeah. that was my first article. That was my first article. And um, and so your first, like a, the first book about the bad boys had a lot of Dexter, right? Wasn't he the cover? Yeah, the first chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my very first uh, article was on Dexter. And so I feel like I have to write an article on, on this one. And we watched it and it's not, I mean, it's entertaining to an extent, but it's, it's nowhere near as good as the previous one. Um, but yeah, TV has been my focus rather than film. Um, and it's the binging, you know, it's like you get into this and, and so we're finding all these weird shows, you know, um, and like Shyamalan, has this show called Serpent. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard of no, it? No, but it's one that um my wife's a huge like horror fan or or oh, anything yeah. that's like dark or anything that's kind of grim and oh it's so, fantastic. Like yeah, yeah. So she, we've talked about watching it, but we're actually I'm watching Peaky Blinders on my own. She was watching at the time Euphoria on her own. And then we oh were watching God, we were watching Doctor show? Who together. Okay. <laughs> so it's I like couldn't... we have like too many too many shows going on right now. Euphoria is is a is a, a project in my head, but I I couldn't get through the first episode. I'm like, and I and my students love it, and I'm like, what? As is in, it was hard you? for you to watch. Oh, I couldn't okay. get through the first episode. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's yeah, horrifying. It is. And my it gets worse. Like, so 
get ready. What is wrong with you? Is this, is this what you go through? Is this your life? Um, because it's so disturbing. And I'm, I mean, we just talked about Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and I couldn't watch one episode of Euphoria, so I'm very disturbed about my students. Um, yeah. But yeah, we watch a lot of TV, and I mean, for fun, okay, I'm, I'm not going to lie, and, and I'm not going to blame Tom on, on this, but I'm currently obsessed, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't use that word lightly, with Teen Wolf. I can't get enough. <laughs> If you left me alone, I would watch all of it right now. It is amazing. <laughs> you just have a thing about wolves, don't you? That's why we it's, watched New Moon. That's I, <laughs> I only watched that because it was racist. Okay, I, I, I know. Like, I know. Why did you just do that? No, Teen Wolf. It's actually really good. It's entertaining and you have to pay attention. I think that's why I like it. It's like, I have to, it shuts my brain off, right? I have to, I have to watch every second of it. All right. I, I lose what's going on. So, um, but yeah, we watch a lot of TV and, and um, that's really what I've been writing on mostly is, is TV. Um, so um, movies, just because I haven't, seen any movies that i've really enjoyed and you know we haven't gone to the theater because of yeah. covid so i'll tell um, you this um th this is up for an oscar by the time we're recording this before the oscars too um but whenever it comes out this might have won it's kind of a front runner it's my favorite film of the year it's called the power of the dog it's Tom on uh, netflix it. yeah I, I would be curious what you think because all i did watching that was like my brain couldn't help itself from clicking in to mm. all of the incredible subtext going on um, that like, I just wanted to write a paper for no reason, you know, right. <laughs> you know, like I just wanted to write about this movie because it kind of blew my mind for yeah. a movie that came out nowadays on Netflix. I just don't yeah. expect that level of good, but Jane Campion made it. So not only do you have a female filmmaker, Right. You have an incredible cast where this is maybe my favorite movie of all of them, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, including um, Benedict Cumberbatch, which is just a complete bastard in this. But talk about a yeah. movie where someone has very little redeeming quality, but when yeah. you see the subtext, you can't do anything but feel sympathy for them. Right. Yeah. So it's like um, it's real. you should if you can convince yourself to watch a movie at any point. Um, I would strongly encourage that. And then you have to text me so we can uh, text about it for a second. <laughs> what is the, okay. It was, it didn't win last year, but there were two uh, female directors yeah. last year that were up and it was the. Um, there were uh, a lot of great, I mean like the number uh, of the ahead, for, for best film. Okay. So it was um, nomads and. The one about yep, Nomadland the, and uh, let me hold on. Let me let me. Woman, um, uh, Why am I not finding the thing I'm looking for? This is very frustrating. She was. It was yeah. the. It was. It was almost like a rape revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't remember what's called right now. Um. Ah, oh, what is it called? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, promising young woman. Promising young woman. I, I actually read the script. Okay, I didn't want to watch the I didn't want to watch the movie until I was 
comfortable with the script. It is amazing. The 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 script is is yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I have to say this because I'm curious what you think of this because I watched promising young woman and the execution of it. I'm not a mm-hmm. huge fan of they, but they the, made her but, change the ending, but what it's doing, well, but even just the way everything, yeah. e- just everything about it feels weird to me. Yeah. But I'm like, fuck, I want to write a paper. Like it's another one of those things where it's like, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot here. You I just have to look about, I have to look, well, I have yeah. to like look past all of the things now that, I feel like are lacking here because there's yeah. good content here, if that makes sense. Right. It's interesting. I am. I'm writing an article right now, actually, for a friend, uh, for a friend's anthology, and it's on Scorsese's lesser known films. So I'm writing an uh, article on um, Age of Innocence. Interesting. Okay. And I, I, it's, yeah. I'm That's a weird fun. movie. I'm having fun with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. so. So, real quick thing about uh, 2020, which is what we were just talking about with, okay. uh, yeah, like Nomadland and stuff. Right. What's interesting about that year is because it was the pandemic year, mm-hmm. um, a lot of big, big, big blockbusters and stuff were pushed off to the next year. They were held off on because they were afraid with uh, releasing them on some sort of platform, they'd lose a ton of money. Right. So they were putting them out. Uh, so what we got actually was a bunch of postponed movies and then everything that was left is are things that we would as a like uh uh as a society or uh, the larger population i guess the casual movie goer things they would overlook every year these are the movies that are getting buzz right right so um and but what i found really interesting and when we did an episode for our top 10 favorite films of that year um when we did that i highlighted this where i was like i think it's interesting how many like popular movies this year were directed by women and how that number, how that is a bigger number than any other year in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> like, fantastic. like we got rid of uh, mm-hmm. all of these big movies and now we're left with all of these kick-ass women movies. You know what I mean? My favorite it's film exciting. of the year was actually, uh, yeah. was actually on, it's on Netflix. It's hard to watch. It's, it's a tough doc, um, but uh, it's called, um, Dick Johnson is dead. And if, if okay. you haven't seen that, that's that's good. But it's it's directed by his daughter. Like Dick uh. Johnson is a real guy. Um, and he finds out that he has um, dementia. He's like a psychiatrist, but uh, mm. he finds out he has dementia. So he ends his practice and he's going to move with his daughter uh, to New York so that he's with someone and he can kind of go through this. But the problem is his late wife, the director's mother, uh, went through the exact same thing. So they've already seen that dissension. Right. Yeah. And now he knows as a psychiatrist and as someone who's been married to someone who went through it, he knows where he is going now. Right. Oh, so yeah. it's like it's but then there's also the kind of gimmick to it where the, the filmmaker is uh, she creates these little short film vignettes of him dying. And the whole purpose of it is for her and him to learn to cope with the loss of his life once he does die. Oh, okay. um, and he loves doing these like he has a blast like making these like weird things where yeah. an air conditioner falls on his head or, you know, like random things. It's great. That's another one I would pitch to you. I'd be curious. But anyways, yeah. anyways. Um, yeah. yeah so TV. I'm behind on, I'm behind on movies because I've watched so much TV, um, but we're watching, you know, like the, the new thing are these sort of short, um, 
like six episode um tv thing mini series yeah yeah and i i can't quite figure out what's going on with that but um I'm enjoying it because they're usually really very, very good. And, yeah, well, th- so my biggest problem with TV is, is something Austin Luger and I used to argue about all the time <laughs> um, is he was a writer and I was much more of a visual, like a more of a director's mind. Yeah. So I was always like the thing I have a problem with with TV is, yeah, they have more time to develop things and stuff, but all everything mm-hmm. looks like shit. And you know, like at the time that was true. I mean, things have progressed now, but at the time yeah. I stood by it. And it's like it's because the directors change all the time. Like every episode might be a different director, but now you get these awesome. You can even get a 10 part miniseries and they're all directed by the same guy and they have the same writing team. Uh, Take a True Detective season one, for example. Yeah, it was like directed by the same guy, same script writers, eight episodes. It's an eight hour movie. Like it feels like an eight hour movie. Yeah, it's like, man, what what a kind of best of both worlds in some ways, in some ways. Where yeah. you get more time to develop and tell these stories, which is the limitation of movies, but you also can keep it so concise that it never goes off the rails like right. 90% of TV shows do, I feel like. Yeah. It's it's so great. I'm glad that you love them. What's the last miniseries that you watched that you were like, fuck, this is awesome? Um. Okay, don't laugh, but it's called Wolf Like Me. What's it with wolves? What I is know. With wolves I'm sorry. You? I, I- <laughs> It's not on purpose, but it's, I can't remember the guy's name. It's Isla Fisher and, um, I'm looking it up. Uh, but they're uh, in Australia. Josh Gad. Yeah. Josh and, Gad. He also did the voice yes. for Olaf, um, <laughs> um <laughs> in Frozen. It's, it's beautifully shot. It's, um, it is six, it's six, you know, it's not going to be the, I doubt there'll be a second one. I mean, it's, it's a concise, um, story and it's well written It's well acted. It's very, very good. And what's funny about it is that it's like a drama, like a, a perfectly normal drama. It's very well written. It just so happens that one of the characters is a werewolf. And so it makes it funny. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's like this bizarre blending of genres and they have these conversations. And if you took the word wolf out of it, it would just be a good drama. But then you realize that they're talking about things where one of them's a wolf and it, you'll just start burst out laughing because it's hysterically funny um, yeah. that and they because they're dead. I mean, they're dead pan serious, having these conversations that you you could only do it with brilliant actors, which is what they've done, and good writing. And we watched it, and we we're like, "Wait a minute, rewind it." <laughs> that was funny. You know, they have this conversation, and it's like, you know, they. It's it's, and I've never seen anything like it before. Um, Interesting. To, to blend a that kind of um, weird genre blend and make it work, and it yeah. not be goofy or silly, it it works really really well. That's so interesting. I know what it is now. I've seen ads for it uh, when it's, watching different things when it came really out. Really good. I might check it out. 
It might be something that because I love I love how you're describing it because I love when a movie uh, when the actors and the characters are taking everything seriously, but the content of the movie is ridiculous. Yeah. So it makes me think of, and this would be very different than Wolf Like Me, I guarantee, but it's like Reanimator. I don't know if you've seen that. Another movie mm. from 1985. Uh, but um, but Reanimator is great because it's about uh, this guy who uh, he's like a he's like a, um, a doctor who is uh, shadowing other doctors. He's like a uh, he just got into this like residential thing. He's like a student, I think. And he's trying to learn from this other doctor and do research. But his kind of secret pet project is he makes this serum that you can actually like inject a dead tissue with it and it brings it back to life. And it's not like zombies, though. It's like okay. they come back to life, but they're all they're still kind of half dead. Like they're not right. You know what I mean? But it's like they're kind of conscious, but also not their whole brains working. So they have like chemical imbalances where they'll just rage. You know what I mean? And um, it's it's funny because like, you know, he accidentally like kills his roommate's cat and it's all played very seriously. So then he like does the thing and the cat comes back to life, but it's all fucked up. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. 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 It's it's uh, it's very clear that Stuart Gordon, the filmmaker, is like in on the joke. Yeah. Right. But they're playing it very seriously. And it's follow up to it's called uh, From Beyond, which I also love. And just put it this way. There's a scene where Jeffrey Combs, the guy that plays the protagonist in both movies, uh, he gets taken to jail, like to uh, he's being held in a room to be interrogated because they found him uh with like a dead body, basically, you know, and he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh basically he's just talking about these creatures that formed because they're all kind of like these Lovecraft stories, basically, and so uh they basically create this machine that can essentially um combine our dimension with another dimension but in this other dimension there are these weird creatures floating around and they can kill you so they just like bite off the doctor's head like he's just dead right so that's why he goes to this interrogation room this is the opening scene and so he's just super serious and he gets really close to the camera he's deadpan and he just goes he ate his head like a gingerbread man like and like I just burst out laughing so hard because it's like so clear that they're in on it but he is 100% committed like yeah. there's no ha ha har har kind of performance yeah. you know I love that so my point is even though that would be very different than this cuz that's really schlocky and fun yeah uh, but I love the idea of people taking something seriously and it being kind of a good thing at what it is but yeah. you just toss this one wrench in and that wrench is what kind of makes it either humorous or different, right? It's yeah, it's a it's a totally different um, thing right now. TV is just so different, and so it's it's taking up a lot of my interest, and um, that's what I've been writing about and talking about. So, yeah, um, there's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot of TV, and um, I'm I'm slowly but surely getting through some of it yeah i have i always have movies i have to watch for this show but uh yeah i try to get peaky blinders i can't push it enough all right well we'll we'll give it a shot yeah yeah i'll I'll be curious your analysis if you uh if you can't shut your brain off to watch it i'll be curious of your analysis all right Um, but ashley thank you so much for being on here i think we had a great conversation about all these things i really appreciate you being here and uh maybe sometime you'll come back yeah, my pleasure. It's super fun, and it's always good to talk to you. So um, have a good night, and um, 
Hopefully we'll see you soon. All right, that was my conversation with Ashley Donnelly. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, we go way back. It's always an absolute pleasure to have her on. I would love to have her on sometime if I ever talk about someone like Quentin Tarantino because she absolutely loathes Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and so uh, she has her own reasons. I'll let her speak for herself if we ever have fun doing that. One place that she and I always connect with, though, is Stanley Kubrick. And so I'm so glad we got to talk about Full Metal Jacket. And, uh, you know, whenever I was kind of under her mentorship and, and, and she was a, a committee chair and, you know, she was a, a mentor and a teacher and all of those things. And uh, whenever I uh, I remember I was getting really into Kubrick and I wanted to do something on Kubrick and go to a conference. And she's the one that kind of backed me up on that and was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do this thing. Um, so, you know, I, I owe a lot to her. and I'm really, really happy that uh, we are still friends after all these years. And that uh, she was able to come on. So like I said, uh, next week, Rick Jimenez is going to come on. We're probably going to have a little bit of music chat. Probably going to have a little bit of wrestling chat. Uh, but we are going to try to stick to movies. I'm going to do the same thing with Rick that I did with everyone else. I'm going to try to dig out some titles that really kind of changed his views on things as well. Uh, but who knows with this guy? I don't even know where we're going to go. All I know is it's going to be a damn good time. I hope you will join us. But until then, I love you all so much. So for now, good night, good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>